Hidden Greatness is an online podcast that discusses the hidden power of a subconscious mind and looks at how talented people use it to manifest their conscious reality. The show will feature individuals who have become champions in their respective careers, looking at darker light times in their lives and how they manage to find the strength to navigate their way to greatness. This week's wonderful guest was a British sprinting child protégé who was tipped to be the predecessor of the great Linford Christie. He went on to win Olympic gold in the Athens 2004 Olympic Games, as well as becoming a world, European and Commonwealth medalist, then turning his hand to bobsleigh later on in his career. It's Birmingham's finest, Mr MLF, aka Mark Lewis Francis. How are you doing, Mark? Very good, thank you. I'm really, pre- really good. Do you prefer Mark or you prefer MLF? Mark. <laughs> Because you're known yeah. as MLF, right? Milf. Milf, did you say? Yeah, that's what people be hey, calling me. Milf. Milf. I'll be like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's MLF. Oh, no yeah, of course. You're of yeah. age now, innit? Yeah. No, no, no. no. I'm kids, joking. Man. I'm joking. I'm joking. How are you? How's life? Life is good. You know, life yeah. is good. You know, um, it took a long time for life to be good, but it's actually very good at the moment. So, yeah. Good. Yeah, man. Well, let's start with your life, where it all started. <laughs> Born and bred, Bromi local boy. Um, so, what was it like growing up? How, what was Mark Lewis Francis like as a kid, family life? Did you have any other sporting interests? Like, where did it all start? Okay. So, me, myself, we was born, I was born in Smevik, um, just on the outskirts of Birmingham, Samwell. Place called um, Grove Lane. Um, very interesting childhood, you know, uh, my mum was a single parent, you know, uh, my dad was in our life, but he didn't live with us, but he was still supported my mum when she needed the help. Um, my sister, my older sister, Melissa Lewis Francis, was my support as a child. You know, What's uh, the age difference between you and Melissa? Um, she's born the 22nd of August, 1981, and mine's the 4th of September, 1982. Okay. So really close. So yeah. we we was always known as Mark and Melissa, you know. Um, but my sister was very academic, and I was very sporty. So I was the bad child that would sit down <laughs> and listen to his parents when we was out in public, and always got the comb in the back of his head from somewhere. She just pulled it out from somewhere. Kunk. Yeah, but my mom was a very strong black woman growing up. You know, um, she came over to the UK, um, and all she ever knew was work. You know, um, she held down three jobs to keep roof. She came roof. over to the UK from Jamaica. Jamaica, okay. Yeah, and um, you know, um, then we were born, and all we've ever known is our mother to be a hard worker. You know, it was always food on the table and the roof over our head. So, um, in my eyes, we had a very good childhood. So, yeah. Okay. Okay, and what about sports? Where did the sporting side come into Okay, it? the sporting side came from it. Um, if I'm honest, there was never any idea of me being an athlete. Um, I was the child that always got in trouble at school. So my dad had to kind of really evaluate and think, what am I going to do with this child? So there's a number of hobbies that I tried. Um, I played the guitar. Guitar? Yeah. Okay, Ma. Yeah, yeah. Not very good though. But <laughs> I had a couple of lessons in the guitar and then the teacher didn't want to come back because I was too bad. And then um, we tried playing a bit of rugby. Um, and then I ended up going to high school. And then one of my PE teachers telling me... Um, this kid should go and join an athletic club because no one can catch him when he's, when he's playing rugby. So that was an idea. So, um, cut a long story short, I got suspended from school and I spent two weeks with my dad and um, we was driving down the Birmingham road and I was like, what's that over there? Which was Alexander Stadium. 
so we decided to take a turn off and um and have a see what it was all about um but we was told to come back on a tuesday and thursday which was club club night. nice yeah so we came back on a tuesday night and um i was introduced to my coach steve platt and um i was just that kid that just didn't know what was going on you know the first time really seeing a track um how old were you at this point i was 12 years old at this point so 12 coming 13 and um I remember going down there and being introduced to Steve and he had me doing all sorts, hurdles, high jump, shot pull. <laughs> so it's a car flow, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the whole thing. And then um, we realised that sprinting was the thing, you know, um, 100 and 200 just came naturally to me. Um, I remember having my very first race in Coventry in the Young Athletes League, McDonald's Young Athletes League and um, forgetting my kit. Because, you know, I had to, um, we never, I never knew what spikes were or anything like that was. So I remember um, borrowing someone's shoes and um, running down the track and one of my shoes fell off. Still ended up winning the race, but I ran 13 seconds. And I was like, wow, <laughs> 12 years old, 13 seconds. Because we used to watch the Olympics at home. As a Caribbean family, that was mm-hmm. one of the main sports that we'd always watch, the Olympics. And I remember a guy called Linford Christie and watching him win in Barcelona. And I was like, yeah. I want to do that. So I stuck out and um, did more Young Athletes Leagues and was just running crazy times, you know. Um, did that first season outdoors and then did a full winter training and came out and did an indoor season um, over the 60 metres. And then I remember standing on the start line and thinking, oh, this is a lot shorter than what we've been running in training, so this shouldn't be a problem. My fear was not being able to finish a race. So um, I stood on the line and and you might as well say, go bang. Oh, it's a national record. I didn't even know what a national record was at this point. So anyway, we went back downstairs into the um, core room, warm-up area at the NIA. Everyone's saying, well done, well done. This is in heat one. Didn't really think nothing of it. Came back upstairs again, ran the semi-final. Another national record. It's like, no way. What's going on? <laughs> you ever had these before? It must have been no good, you know? Shame. you know... <laughs> It was only it was the first time I ever did a major um, indoor competition. And then came back and um, ran again in the final, another national record. And that's when the doors opened for me, you know, because I was able to, you know, get invitations to the international meets. And you know, how work. how old are you at this point? I was under thirteen. Yeah, yeah, under thirteen. And you're doing big, big international meets, okay? Yeah, I think the, I think it was England. It was an England meet. So, okay. Um, for me, it was the first time. Bam, bam. I ever, you know, for me, it was just racing. You know, I didn't really know the honor of it mm-hmm. as such. Do you remember what you ran in those races? Those three I national think it records. Six seventy, and then six seventy one, six seventy three, six seventy two, six seventy. Um, so something along them lines, and then that same year, I ran six sixty nine, and then um, it's all blurry at the moment. I'm yeah, going my head and kind of think, <laughs> but I, I I just remember that part of my athletic career being a a constant memory in my career, you know what I mean? So for me, again, that definitely did open doors because my name was in people's mouths and it's like, who's this kid? So again, my coach, he kept me very humble, focused, you know. Um, naturally, my schooling got a lot better as well because I had a focus, you know, I had something that I was enjoy doing, that, that I enjoyed doing. And um, we came back the next year and I think it was, um, I'm not even sure, I'm not even sure, but fast forward, moving forward, we we um, qualified for the World Indoor Championships. 
against um, Tin Hard and Tim Montgomery and myself. And what year was that? I couldn't even tell you. (laughs) And that was in 2001? 2001, yes. That was 2001 that you qualified for the World Indoors at the British Indoor National Championships? That's the one. That's the one. I remember that. Um, Like it was yesterday. And um, the World Championships for me, that was my first international GB um, indoor major championships. I think I was 18 years old. Um, I remember not being worried or nervous or anything, just treating it as like a, a normal everyday race and um, going there not really knowing who was who and what was what. So that really didn't put no pressure on myself. And I remember going out there and finishing third. I remember being very upset and gutted about it as well. I just remember um, turning up for that race and my coach saying to me, just go out there and enjoy it. You've got no pressure on your shoulders. Um, And I went out there and I ran 6.51. I was like, no way. I was devastated because I came first. Um, But at the same time, now as a 37-year-old, I'm like, wow. You know, to be that young and to stand on that platform and to compete under that amount of pressure and not feel pressure was the next level. And that was something that I always tried to look for in my older years of competing as well. But I could never quite find it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's how my athletic career really started indoors. It was an indoor thing, coming out and r- running indoors and just enjoying it as, as a break from the outdoor season. Yeah. Mm. So prior to indoors, you did also win... The World Youth yes. in 99 yes, and yes. the big one at a junior age, which was the World Juniors in 2000. Yeah. I even, as a schoolgirl who was coming into the sport, I remember that because um, it was in Chile, Santiago. Mm, that's right, that's right. And you were everywhere. <laughs> but it wasn't just you, it was also other success of other athletes in the team. Because yeah. remember the women's 4x4? Four four? Yes. Um a following year, I'd, meet, I'd met him, um, was on a team with Lisa Miller. That's right. And uh, Jenny Meadows was there as well. Right, and um, right. I was like, wow, look at all these athletes, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it was incredible. Thompson. Yeah, Chris mm-hmm. Tomo. Um, so, you know, you did have that experience at a junior global level. Mm, I and think in 2001. I've always said our World Junior team was probably the best that I've ever known it ever to be. But um, is that you being biased? No, not at all, <laughs> because I was in um, Annecy in 1998. As a relay reserve, um, I'll tell you the story about that. Went to English schools, um, ran an amazing 10-3 in the final of the 100 metres. Um, we won our four by one. And um, on the way back home, I remember talking to Tony Hadley. And Tony Hadley said to me, oh, I've had a phone call off one of the Great Britain coaches. And um, someone got injured for the relay. Um, and they're looking for a sprinter. Would you be interested? I never had a passport at this time. I was like, yes, of course. So you'd never left the country? Never left the country. So I was like, yes, definitely interested. This is a no-brainer for me. Um, And I remember um, getting everything sorted out and heading out to Annecy and being amongst the likes of Christian Malcolm, um, Abby, um, Yapatang. Who else was there? There was a whole bunch of athletes, great athletes, um, karma stuff, and just, you know, see the Blackpool Tower and be like, wow, these guys are <laughs> really professional athletes, like, you know, um, and just being very, very um, inspired by Christian Malcolm's performance. And I walked away from that World Junior Championships and I was like, I want to do that, you know, he's champion of the world. And then in the year 2000, 2000 
Mm-hmm. I went to um, Santiago, Chile as an individual performer and won the World Juniors in the 4 by one and the 100 metres. So you came back with two gold medals? Two gold medals. And for me, that was like, wow. But the story behind that was I qualified for Sydney Olympics as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said, oh, you should have went. You know, you could have won a medal and that would have been you sorted for the rest of your life. And the plan was always <clears throat> to go to the World Junior Championships and do it step by step instead of jumping into the fire and getting a bit more experience. And, uh, was that a conscious thought you made from yourself or your coach? It was a plan you? that me and my coach sat down and we made from the start of the year before even qualifying for the Olympics. And we was always about sticking to the plan. And the plan was to go to the World Junior Championships and see what happens after that. And for me, it was one of the best decisions I ever made because the doors that opened afterwards meant that I never ever had to work as an athlete again. You know, I was I got my Nike sponsorship. Um, I was funded by UK Sport and I was able to fully focus on track and field. So for me, the next four years was crucial, which, which would have been 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the plan... The plan was a no-brainer. So me and Steve um, carried on for the next four years to try and get a medal in the 100 metres in Athens in 2004. And for me, Athens was special because it's the birthplace of athletics. So for me, it was a no-brainer that I had to leave with something. This is fast-forwarding again to 2004. (laughs) Um, And then I just remember entering the village and just feeling magical. I can't explain it. Was it everything you imagined? Um, and more because you'd watched it with yeah. your family growing up yeah but you'd never known what it was like behind the scenes behind you weren't because oh, all you ever seen from the TV is the track right exactly so as an athlete as you know mm-hmm. I tried I tried my hardest to keep it as how it was how I saw it on TV which was a magical event and just stayed focused on what I needed to stay focused on but that year we had Justin Gatlin and Sean Crawford and you know, Maurice Green and all those guys. And I just missed out on the final. Devastated. Went back to the hotel. Cried my eyes out. Phoned my mum. She's like, why? Yeah, right. You have the far by one. And I'm like, what? I forgot about that. So she said, yeah, man, just, you know, just regroup, get yourself right and work with your team. And I was like, but I don't even know if I'm on the team. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, for me, it was... Very fortunate for myself to get on that team, you know, because we had great athletes out there. Yeah, Christian Malcolm, Darren Campbell, Jason Gardner, Marlon Devinish. Then in the background, you had Dwayne Grant. Oh, Scottish guy. Duncan? Nick Smith. Nick Smith, okay. So um, there were six of you? Six of us. Okay. And then there was myself. Um, and I was like, oh, I've been racing with these guys all year. I don't even know what's going on. So because you'd done all the relay races... In that particular year, mm-hmm. do you think you had a good chance of being in a strike four? Or were you kind of sceptical in regard to your performance? I was always sceptical because it was never guaranteed. Because if you take it back to 2003 in Paris, I was in the, the heat of the hundred meter, I mean, of the four by one relay. And then I got pulled and then they put Dwayne Chambers in there in the final. And, you know, Dwayne's my boy, man. I got a lot of love for Dwayne. But we would have kept that medal if they kept me in the final. But that's politics. Yeah. You know, the manager at the time was I can't remember, John Regis. And um, he decided that Dwayne would have been a better guy than me. So it's what it was. And my only person in track and field that would have stopped me from getting into any team would have been Dwayne. You know, because me and Dwayne was 
toe to toe on in many many races. What um, was that actually like? Just to touch on that slightly because I think it's fair to say over the years and <laughs> the earlier years of your career, mm-hmm. you had some fantastic battles with Dwayne. Of course, <laughs> like Dwayne was my the guy that I used to go home and train hard for. Purely Dwayne, because he at the time you considered him your biggest threat. No, remember Dwayne's a mad talent. He's a like he's a beast, and and I say it to his face, you know, that's the only guy that I really had fear for, you know. Um, so he made me work, you know. Um, and I remember the year of I can't even remember, but I raced him in is it the Oslo meet and in I the won, Golden League in the Golden League, <laughs> and I beat him. And that gave me mad confidence. Do you remember what time you were? I'm, I'm somewhere about 10.09, 10.10 or something crazy like that. I'm not even sure. But, you know, for me, in my career, time was never, ever irrelevant. It was always about the race. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I'd never really cared about time. But um, I remember getting out of the blocks and just eating the track and thought, I'm not letting him pass me. And I beat him. And that gave me mad confidence. And I think that was the year of 2002. I'm not quite sure. Because again, it was leading up to a major championships. But for me, that gave me a lot of confidence. A lot, a lot of confidence. Um, and then the following year in 2003, I ran 10 which is my 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 personal best. Um, so from the from the year of 2001 all the way to 2003, we, we was back-to-back battling. And that's what kind of made me have no doubt in my mind that I should be on the 4 by one you know, just from those three years. And he came through that. I was fortunate enough to make the team, you know, um, and then we achieved what we achieved. Which was? The Olympic gold medal in 2004, <laughs> which is probably one of my biggest achievements to date, but not my best achievement to date. So take us through that moment on the start line. Okay. You know, I'm sure we've seen it countless and countless of times. I remember watching it uh, as a, how old was I? Gosh, 17, 18. And I remember I was working in a hotel at the time and I remember watching it and I basically was like, everyone stop, the men's four by one is on. And I basically all the customers were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I made everyone watch because I was yeah. even annoyed because I had to work my shift. Um, and I was like, I told my manager that day, it's like, I'm only working if I can watch the meet. Yeah, and yeah. you guys are actually on during my work and I made everyone stop. Yeah. And we watched it. One of my proudest moments in track and field. So, so what yeah, was that yeah. like? What was going through your mind okay. like before the race so with take you it and back, the team? If we take it back to the heats, we almost got disqualified. That Why was that? Not a lot of people know this, but I made a very big mistake by going a little bit too early on but, my check mark. And um, Marlon, because Marlon was so tuned in to where I needed to be, the mistake was very, wasn't really noticed, but we were very um, close to the end of the acceleration zone that would have got us disqualified. But we ended up coming second to the USA, and uh, which put us on the inside of them for the final, which um, put us in that position where we could put them under pressure a little bit. And as you see, Jason in the final had a false start. My heart was beating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely beating. And... Um, the full start was called back. Um, but later on in life, I found out that he did it on purpose. But yeah. The full, uh, did he now? Yeah. Okay. We'll have to, we'll have to speak to Jason guys. about that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so we actually did it on purpose to put the pressure on the rest of the guys, which worked. You know, um, he ended up getting an amazing start. So like, As he does. I was like, wow. Okay. Then after that, really, it was it's, it's all a blur. 
because you know as running relays you know that you gotta focus on what you gotta focus on and I was focused on hitting that check mark when Marlon was coming around the bend and I remember sitting in the core room quiet and just having a little reason with myself and then I looked at the guys and I said to them if you give me the baton in first place I promise you no one will pass me and then it was silent again and I remember com- watching Marlon come around the bend and he I hit the check mark I remember putting my arm back I remember him saying hand putting my hand back I grabbed the baton and I thought he gave me the baton first and I can't remember nothing else <laughs> It was all a blur. It's all a blur. It's all a blur. All I remember is getting to the finish line and having that look to the right and then dipping. And I thought, no way. Did you see Maurice? Did you see I him? I didn't see nobody. And I, I was like, no way. Because as you know, TV can be a bit of a trick mm-hmm. in the mind. It looks like a very close race. But on the track, it definitely wasn't the case. And um, I was like, no way, we actually did it. That's why you see the eruption at the end of the finish line. All my dreams came true. Everything. You know, um, and it wasn't even thinking about the future. It was just like, we've won the Olympics. We've done it. And I've done it with the guys that I think deserve it the most, you know, because the politics in the relay Mm -hmm. in previous years was ridiculous, you know. And I think the guys that I won the four by one with, to this very day, we still have a great relationship. We link up, we meet up once a year and, you know what I mean? Have a good old reason and food, and it's it's, it's, a it's like a family right? for life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And you know, uh, no matter where they are in the world, I'll always have mad love for them because they helped me achieve my my dream. Um, so yeah. So what was the aftermath like after winning Olympic gold? Like you have to understand, men's four by one hadn't won a major medal since you know civil world champs. Um, obviously, there was an issue, Edmonton, 2001. Yeah. Um, 2002, you guys did great, but obviously you weren't part of the team. No, no. Um, 2003 as well, but then you hadn't had success in the Olympics. Remember Sydney? Mm-hmm. There was an issue with yeah. Alan, Condon, and Jason in the first round. I so that. you guys have just won the biggest medal that you could ever have as a sprinter. So what was it like coming home with that medal? Because you guys were endorsements, TV shows, award shows, popularity, celeb status. What was mm, that like? Nah, I don't think we ever got there. If I'm honest with you, don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> we did bits and pieces. Um, like we did the mobile awards and, you know, um, we was invited to sports personality and, you know, we was up for team of the year and stuff like that. But I think potentially what we could have achieved, I don't think it quite happened, you know, um, and our story's never been told publicly. It's been told amongst friends, but it's never been told publicly. And for me, as a Olympic gold medalist, I don't really think it was what I thought it was going to be. If that makes any sense? Yeah. You know, um, I think if we won that medal now in this day and age, we would be definitely gone clear. Financially, um, mentally, physically, all four of us would be in a different situation. And I think the problem was communication. With what or whom? Four different agents, four different people, four different characters, you know, um, and just not really coming together as the way we should have come together to um, tell our story and what it took for us to get there. Because like you were saying, it took a long time for us to actually get there. And then when we did get there, no one expected us to do what we did. You know, um, 
talk about the the underdog story. That's exactly what we were. You know, um, I think people were predicting us to win a bronze, max. You know, but what we believed that what we could go out there and achieve was next level. You know, um, you know the spirit in Marlon, the spirit in Jason, the spirit in Darren. Remember, all three of those guys had their own personal problems. Marlon didn't compete in the individual. Um, Jason was good, but he never made the final like me. Darren had his hamstring injury. And then there was myself that was young and confident. And I think those three guys helped me win that medal just by sticking together as a family and listening to our coach, Steve Perks, you know, and not letting nobody else interfere with what he had to say about going out there and doing what we had to do. And there was nobody that thought they was above the team. Even with the reserve guys, we went to lunch together, we went for dinner together. We were united, you know, um, and we went out there and done the thing <laughs> we actually did it you know and even when I sit down now and I speak about it it still doesn't seem like it's real you know don't get me wrong the medal has definitely been rewarding you know it's helped me be um, a role model to the younger athletes coming up by going into schools and telling my story you know in my community I get a lot of love around here just because they know where I'm from of you course know? and um, yeah yeah, yeah. So for me, it's it's it's. I'm happy with what's what, with what I've done with my in in my career. You know, um, obviously every athlete would love to do more, but remember, I'm from a council estate in Smevit. You know, most of my friends are in jail or dead. So for me, it's a massive achievement. Do you know what I mean? So, it's yeah. a big achievement. Mm. You shouldn't downplay it. No, nah, of course not, of course not, of course not. Course Olymp- not. I think to, to become an Olympian as a British athlete, mm. even as a sprinter, it's hard enough. Like, look at what you were up against. Yeah. And then to come away with a medal. Yeah, it's mad. A gold medal. To that, yeah. And you got an MBE from the Queen off, yeah, that with was that a, as well. That was that an success. amazing day, you know, just to spend the day in Buckingham Palace. And, Did you so, meet Elizabeth? Um Charles gave us the um, RMB. Okay. So for me, I didn't get to meet the Queen Queen. But then we got <laughs> to meet the Queen. I think we had lunch with the Queen for, okay. um, in the same year. So and what me, was that like? That was nice. Did you speak to her? Did you curtsy or bow? I'm a shy guy. Because you know it? there's a um, yeah. royal protocol. Yeah, but we was told, whatever you do, don't turn your back. So that's that's one thing I was conscious about. You know I mean? But it was, like I said, for me, from where I'm from and to actually end up being in... Well, around royalty for me, amazing, amazing, amazing. So let's just take it back slightly because you did have an amazing career. You know, there was a lot that happened prior mm. to 2004 as well. So let's take it to 2001 World Champs. It was a great year for you in the build-up. Yeah. Had a fantastic performance at the National Championships of the British Champs as well. Yeah. Um, but you know what happens <laughs> yeah. in Edmonton. So Edmonton 2001 was weird because um, I was 18 years old. So you were still a junior? Still a junior athlete. Right. Um, so I had no pressure on my shoulders. I remember um, waking up and thinking, oh, it's the first round of the 100 metres, like my coach said, just go out there and qualify. I remember having a cup of coffee with him in the hotel and he said, um, just qualify, you know, you know, the first round. Don't be too easy, but just get through it. So I said, all right, then, cool, let's do that. I think I ran 10.28. I'm not sure. 10.28, qualified. And I said to him, that felt really, really easy. Like, I had so much more left. So he said, second round, just turn it up a little bit. 
So I turned it up a little bit, but I turned it up a little bit too much. And I ran 9.98. And then um, I went back to the hotel room, all excited and, you know, adrenaline buzzing, world junior record, yada, yada, yada. Um, woke up in the morning to do semi-final and final to then hear that the wing gauge wasn't working and it's not a world junior record. My body was aching from running the night before because I wasn't the athlete to get a rub or cool down. It just wasn't me to do. You know, I was mm-hmm. just the athlete just to go back to the hotel room, have some dinner, have a shower, watch a movie, go to sleep. And that's exactly what I did. So I woke up in the morning, I was a little bit stiff, I was sore, my body was hurting, my hamstrings were tight. Um, so you didn't actually know about the problem with the wing gauge? Until the next day. The next day? Yeah, yeah. So, so what was going through your mind for the next 12 hours? <laughs> Can't believe what's going on, I'm... Because it's four rounds as well, yeah, back in those days. In those, four rounds back in those, in those days. And you went 9-9? Nine, nine. Well, you thought you went 9-9? Nine, nine. In the second heat. So, but it never, it wasn't quite that. So for me, um, emotionally, I was drained. Stood on the start line and I think I ran 10-34. And never made it into the final. Devastated. I remember walking up and Donovan Bailey putting his arm around me saying, listen, yeah, you're the one for the future. I was like, this is Donovan Bailey. I just watched him win the Olympics. What's going on? Do you know what I mean? And um, He did say you were the most phenomenal talent he'd ever seen. So there was a reason why he said that. Yeah, definitely. And he was one of the realest too. One of the realest. Like, he, like Donovan Bailey for me was, was like meeting my idol, having a guardian angel there, having a mentor and just being able to be in his presence and listen to his stories. I was like, this guy is a legend. You know, and for, for him to say that about me, it was very overwhelming. So I came home from 2001 and I, I trained my tail off. And then in 2002, I ran some of the craziest times I've ever run in my career. And there was one little guy from St. Kitts and Nevis that, <laughs> that troubled Literally. me all <laughs> year round. Guy. Yeah, um, Mr. Kim Collins. Mr. Kim Collins, who yeah. only just recently retired, like... Me and him became very, very good friends. He stayed with me in London and um, just before I retired and we trained together and we were just reminiscing. Kim is a very, very decent guy. and um, But in 2002, he was like a guy that I couldn't shake, you know. Um, I remember going to the Commonwealth Games up in Manchester and racing him round for round, watching what time he just ran and, you know, just you know keeping a very close eye on him. And he was my main focus because I... I knew how good he was. Uh, so it wasn't Dwayne, because Dwayne was also in the final as well. Yeah. I remember you guys were like the poster boys of the event, because yeah. Commonwealth Games in Manchester, home championship. I think for me in 2002, I just had enough, you know what I mean? Because I was always seen as the black sheep in it. So I kind of disengaged myself from the British sprinters and just made friends amongst the international sprinters. You know, um, I was always the biggest threat. So I became the black sheep. So I just decided just to do me. You know, um, and that year for me, you know, again, I don't really want to badmouth Dwayne. Like I said, I got a lot of love for him, but it was, you know, after seeing him in the indoors and just seeing the size difference and I was just like, something's going on around here. So let me just focus on me. So in two Were you fa- aware at the time that some, there was, spe- was there speculation or did you There was talks in it, talk? you know, not really from his perspective, just with the athletes that he was associated with back then. Um, I just remember looking at these guys thinking, I ain't never seen a girl that big in my life. You know? <laughs> she got bigger quads than me, you know what I mean? So for me, it was just one of those situations where I just decided to disengage myself from that. 
and just focus on what I needed to focus on because I had my own personal issues going on in my life anyway. So for me, it was about the track was an escape and I ain't going to make anybody else's problems become my problems. Um, and I just got on with it. Made the final, 2002, Manchester City um, Stadium. Stood on that start line. Again, just had that same feeling where I was almost floating when I was walking. Got into my blocks. I had one of the best starts I ever had in my whole career. Got halfway down the track. I was about to step on the gas and I tore my hamstring. 10 centimeter grade two tier career. I mean, season done. European, we had European champions later on that month and I had to go home. Um, me personally, I thought I would have ran sub 10 and probably won that Commonwealth Games, which again would have been amazing for my career, but it didn't quite happen. So I went home. There was a physio um, that used to look after me, Paula Wilde, amazing physio. Um, got back home, she treated my hamstring. 2003 came, you know, um, stronger mentally, physically, um, and then ran 10 Paris World Championships. But the build-up t- towards Paris World Champs was amazing because every race that I raced, I was just season best, personal best, all the way through. Um, and it was probably one of the best years I ever had in track and field. Yeah. Then got to Paris and then we had that situation with... John Drummond laying on the track just before my race. It was an entertaining championships. It was, man, the least. but he messed my race up, man. <laughs> so it's his fault. I blame him. <laughs> Definitely. Like I said, 2003, I was in the best shape of my life. And, you know, I was out there for a good minute and my hamstring, my mental, my physical, it just was all gone. As I went into the blocks, I knew I was going to run bad and I didn't make the final. So, yeah. Thanks, John. <laughs> Oh gosh, you've definitely experienced a lot to say the least. Yeah, but like I'm a firm believer, everything happens for a reason, and it don't get me wrong. There's no hate or any malice against anybody. You know, it's just things happen. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know what I mean? So that's what it is. Post 2004, you know, off the back of winning Olympic golds, you were then going into a new season as Olympic champion. Yeah. So the first championship you had. 2005 was the European indoors and you won a silver medal. (laughs) However, (laughs) the medal was then taken away due to a failed test of samples of cannabis that were found in your system, which you did explain were due to passive smoking. You had a public warning Mm -hmm. and you had to apologise. I had to apologise. And you had, you did have the medal taken away. Yeah. What was that like in that moment? What was going through your mind? It was embarrassing, isn't it? Because, you know, I'm from a proud family, isn't it? You know, of Jamaicans where, you know, if you disrespect the name, you're kind of shunned upon a little bit, you know? And everything that I did in athletics up until that point was the first in my family, you know? So for people to hear that and to be like, what are you doing? Why are you burning weed? I'm like, I was in the blues. Everyone was burning weed in there and, my levels on my test was very, very low, you know, um, but it was in the system. So that's why I got caught. And then it was like, boy, you're too lie, man. You're a bone weed. 
But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the and 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 that's the truth of the matter. Do you know what I mean? Until you know, I just thought to myself, alright, that's a lesson learned. I gotta start watching where I am and what I'm doing. This is really a profession. This isn't no hobby. So it was a massive consequence, 2005, you know, for me. And um, I had to kind of deal with the deal with the shame, deal with the embarrassment, and move forward. And that's exactly what I did with it. And how did you bounce back? It wasn't really a problem for me because you know, as I can say now, as a retired athlete, I'm from a a family of wrestlers so it wasn't really an issue for me because I grew up around it like do you know what I mean and you know but in sport it's different it's a profession isn't it you're getting paid to to be professional and that's what I didn't understand so I had to learn the hard way and I made sure I never made that mistake again so then you made significant changes so yeah 2005 I left Birmingham and I moved down to London Um, I started training with a guy called Tony Lester um, it was a hard decision to make because my childhood coach Steve Platt was like a father to me in it, and um, he, um, I left him and I, I felt like I broke his heart, you know, because you know we had so much more to do, and um, it's kind of hard for me to talk about because when I moved down to London, I think it was a couple of years or a year later, he passed away, so my options of coming back home and being around the coach that made me a champion wasn't there no more so I became lost in track because he was like you said a father figure right 100% he used to pick me up from my house he used to take me training he used to drop me home you know we used to have long conversations on the way back home from competitions you know he knew stuff about me that nobody else knew you know uh, he helped me out with my personal life you know he was really that guy and there's not many people like that so I try and model myself upon Steve's teachings you know and try and be that person Never be that person, but I try and be 10%, 20% of Steve Platt. And um, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have ever achieved what I achieved in sport. And that's the truth, you know. He, underst- he, he understood the sport. He understood me as an athlete. He knew what made me tick. You know, he knew what training I needed. You know, it was never a case of just training in one big group and everyone doing the same thing. He was very individual. Um, and I think that's, that makes an amazing coach. You know, um, then when I moved to London, it was a whole different ball game. Everything was hard work, hard work. If you're not on the track, throwing up, you haven't drained hard enough. And that was never my person. So that never... must have been a massive shift for you then? Yeah, like running four four hundreds with five minutes recovery was never me. Excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> That's hard work. Wow. You know? And, um, you know, doing the hill runs and the weight training and, you know, being more pacific was definitely a change for me like you know what I mean and um, it made me a stronger person because it made me realise that I had to put the work in because I was becoming an older athlete and I was the talent you could only live with for so long so I, when I moved to Tony I realised that what hard work was which was good you know because it built character but moving forward onto that you know um, I had one of the biggest injuries in my life as well which I tore my Achilles tendon in 2008, just before the Olympics. Again, I'd like to say I was in the best shape of my life. Me and Marlon was going toe-to-toe in training. Can't forget them 150-metre reps, you know, coming off the bend and picking it up and really pushing towards that line. You know, those were good training sessions, you know, um, block sessions, you know. He was always a, Marlon was always a, a good athlete to train with. 
But while we was out in um, Cyprus, I remember saying I got a burning sensation in my bottom of my foot, which was my plantar fascia, which was overly tight. So we ended up doing a block session and I remember pushing out the blocks and just hearing a pop. In my head, I'm like, what's that? I'll be all right. As soon as I landed, that's it. Achilles was gone. You know, so we caught the next plane home. Um, and then I went to go see a guy called Dr. Hocken down in London. And then um, he said, yeah, you're not going to the games. <laughs> Nothing at all. So yeah, that's the first time I, I like a proper tears came to my eyes and I was devastated. I was like, yeah, that was my only shot. And what was that like, you know, hearing it from? Because, you know, at that point, remember, you're also... In my head, I'm thinking I'll be all right. Yeah. But you're also coming back to the next Olympics as a gold medalist as well. And that's the thing. So I didn't really... That's why, for me, winning the 2004 gold medal probably didn't hit me as much because I didn't go to the next one and, you know, get to defend the title as such. Um, So mentally, that messed me up a lot. Do you know what I mean? Um... I remember putting on crazy weight that year and just being depressed and sitting at home on an exercise bike and then just pedaling, pedaling, thinking I'm I'm going to be back, I'll be all right. You know, um, people that I definitely have to thank for getting me back, Ricky Sims, James Moore and Linford Christie. You know, um, I was in a dark place. I remember... You know, making the decision to leave Tony and to join Linford. And, um, How did he take that? He didn't like that. He didn't like that because he felt like I wasn't giving him an opportunity to get my full potential out. Because you'd only been with him at that point for only a few years. Yeah. And yeah. you hadn't really done as well as you probably would have liked yeah, yeah. for Def- the both of you. Definitely my progression definitely went backwards. Um European Championships, I think we got a medal, you know. We did achieve medals, but not the medals that I wanted to achieve. And um, I remember making that decision to leave Tony and um, to go and sit down with Linford and have a meeting and to see where where we can take me. Um, 2009. Um, so I decided, all right, this is it. I've got to make that conscious decision. This is the decision that only I can make. So I made that decision and went to Linford. And... Um, started working with Linford and Linford and Steve had a really good relationship so he knew what made me work as an athlete you know because Steve used to take me to Wales and we used to do the sand dunes and with Linford and Darren and Jamie Bolsh and we used to do those back in the day so Linford knew me as an athlete um, and I got to know him as a person as well I got mad love for him man he's crazy <laughs> yeah what was it like working with Essentially having your coach as someone who you watched in the 92 Olympics. Did you ever foresee that? Because it must have been crazy at the time. Never. You know, he was my idol, man. Seriously. You know, um, I remember just just turning up to training and him just being there and catching two jokes and shaking my head thinking, yeah, that's Linford. (laughs) You know, and once you get to know him, you realise he's just like you and I. Just a normal guy that loves the sport that much. Do you know what I mean? So... I remember 2009 coming out. I ran 10.6, devastated. But he said, patient man rides a donkey. 
I said, all right, my donkey's back, sword old coach. <laughs> you know what I mean? I need to see what's going on. He said, have patience. So I said, all right, cool. So we had a good winter in 2010. One of the best winters I've probably ever had in a long time. Lost mad weight. Got down to a good race weight. Knew what hard work was. You know, Andrew Matthews, I've got, I've got to give him some love because, you know, he was, it was me and him that was putting in the work and, you know, getting through that. And um, 2010 was European year, Commonwealth year. Europeans in Barcelona, Commonwealth Games in Delhi. I remember saying to him before even qualifying or even thinking about where we're going to be, I said, Barcelona, that would be nice, coach. That's where you won your Olympic gold, isn't it? <laughs> and he went, yeah, man, I'd like to go back, Mark. So I said, all right, cool. So we did the training. I just missed out on the 100 metres. I was devastated. But I made the four by one. And I remember Colt saying, just make sure you eat plenty of fruit while we're on this camp. And drink enough water. I said, all right, cool. I was blessed. I had food poisoning. I had one of those oysters, me and Dan Paff. <sighs> Yeah, who told you to eat oysters I don't even know before. I just said I ain't never seen oysters before in my life I'm oh gonna, so you got excited I'm gonna try one of these you and your bougie self listen <laughs> yeah I remember going to the golf course and going to the driving range and I picked up a golf stick and I was like oof I gotta go back then I went back and I was in my well I threw up and all the rest of it and I lost the weight that I needed to lose. <laughs> it's mad. You know, God works in mysterious ways, but it happened. Um, bed bound for a couple of days. I lost a bit of weight, drinking a lot of water, got back into the training. I was on the back straight with Linford. And then after that session that me and Linford did, I remember Lloyd coming over to me and went, boy, you look good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and because I'm just doing what coach is telling me to do, I'm not really reading too much into how my running is because I just know I'm in the relay and I gotta make sure I make the relay team the 100 metres is gone that's that so I remember after that training session after lunch Charles came over to me and um, Charles Van Connolly and he went I've been having a think I've gone okay and he's gone um, I'm gonna give you that third spot for the 100 metres I started crying innit he <laughs> start bawling I started crying man <laughs> And I remember him saying, finish top 10 in Europe and we'll be very happy with that. And me being me, I said, feisty. <laughs> top 10, I'm making I'm making a final and I'm going for a medal. You've given me the opportunity and that's exactly what I'm about to do. I'm about to seize the day. So um, it goes through. I'm in the, my first round. I've got Christophe Lemaitre. I'm thinking, okay, I've got the fastest guy in Europe in my first race. Let's have a feel, and let me try and get into his rhythm. Got out of the blocks. I thought, ooh, it's quick. Well, yeah, that quick. So I stayed with him. I qualified. I said, okay, cool. Second round. Can't remember who I had in my second round. Qualified, but I can't remember if it was four rounds or three rounds. This is the only thing I can't remember. I think it was three rounds. I qualified by zero point zero three of a second for the final. For the final, right? But I had to wait for the next heat. So the race that I raced, I wasn't in the final. The next seat, I was the fastest loser. I was given lane two. And I remember being next to the Italian guy, Carlio. Then it was me. Then it was Dwayne. I remember seeing that and I thought, you know what, that's all right for me. Because if I get out in front of Dwayne, because we all know Dwayne can start, mm -hmm. I've got a chance of being in the race. 
maybe not a medal, being in the race. Went back, didn't warm up for the final. I lay down on the physio bed, I put my music on and I walked to lap with Linford. And he said, Mark, you've done better than what we've all expected. Just go out there and have some fun. So I remember now walking towards the fight, the first call with Linford and he walked the whole way with me. And we was just laughing and joking. I f- he did it on purpose, just not for me to think about the race. I remember sitting in the final call room and saying you got nothing to lose. This is it. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. Go out there and have some fun. I remember getting into the blocks. Gun going off. Racing. Thinking, oh, I think I'm in front of the way. <laughs> Relax. And I just relaxed and dipped. 10.17. But I think four of us or three of us ran 10.17. So they had to go down to the point and they gave me the silver medal. And for, for that moment there, that's the best medal I've ever run, um, won in athletics. Ever, ever won in athletics. And then off the back of that, I went to Delhi. And if the blocks didn't slip, curse <laughs> of the Commonwealth Games, I think I would have beat Lerone Clark and won a Commonwealth gold medal in the 100 metres. But then, in the 4 by one won the gold medal, which was truly, truly, truly inspiring for me. Yeah. And why was that? Just the stuff that I went through in previewing the build-up for the Commonwealth Games. You know, um, having an injury, changing coach, started to believe in myself a little bit more and just being a happier guy, you know, and not letting the contracts and the lottery and bits and pieces get the better of me. So what, what will be, will be. Ended up having an amazing year. So, yeah. Do you realise when you're talking about all your success right through from junior to senior level, you were 28 years old crazy, when you yeah. won your first back-to-back individual yeah. senior medal. Because medals you'd won beforehand yeah. were junior level, yeah. world juniors, world yeah. youth, and then the Commonwealth and the Olympic medals were with the team. Yeah. But you, at this point, were 28 years old mm. and you're winning your first senior medal. It's crazy. It must yeah. have felt... You must have felt so elated. Of course. Because it was a huge, huge achievement for yourself, but also because of everything that you've gone through, it was a ma- an amazing comeback. Definitely probably the best comeback that I've probably ever done in track and field. And um, again, I got Linford to thank for that. Do you know what I mean? Because he put my mind in that place where it needed to be. And then I started thinking, only if I came a couple of years earlier. But then no regrets. You don't know, do you? I don't know, what, no You regrets. don't know what would have happened? Exactly, exactly. But yeah, yeah, it definitely made me see my true ability. And like today, me and him, we talk every day on WhatsApp. You know what I mean? We've got that relationship where he's my best friend. Do you know what I mean? Legitly my best friend. So yeah, of course. Big up L. Big up L, <laughs> man. <laughs> so you were arguably one of Britain's best 100 metre sprinters. That's more than fair to say. But the thing about your career, Mark, is that you didn't quite hit sub 10, or legally at least. It's mad, isn't it? So when you, when you look back on everything that you've achieved, yeah. you went to every single championship, you, you know, yeah. a couple of amazing major medals. What was that like as an individual athlete being up with, you know, the likes of Dwayne and, you know, Jason and Linford mm. and never running sub 10? How does that feel? It hurts a little bit because every time I did run sub 10, remember I ran sub 10 four times. Yeah. 
We had top 10 against Dwayne in Sheffield. Right. And what happened there? 2.1 wind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> then I ran it again against Dwayne. It was a mad time. I think Crystal Palace. I'm not even sure. But the clock mash up. <laughs> or sort of like that. Was that um, the um, Crystal Palace meet where Dwayne went? So. 9-6 yeah, and I, everyone was I'm there. I'm not sure if I ran. I'm not sure, but I did run sub 10. Sheffield. Edmonton. Was in a Golden League or Diamond League or Gateshead or somewhere like that. Ostrava. Did I run in Ostrava? I won Ostrava. Um, I think Ostrava was 10-0. I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah, it was always... The elements that stopped me from achieving that. But I knew I could do it, you know. Um, the World Juniors, I was supposed to go sub-10. But I eased up because I knew I won it. Um, but were you though? Because you're saying all of this, right? Yeah. And look at what you've achieved, yeah. even without running sub-10. It's because true. if it's you look true, back true. in those days from watching... um you know, even remember Kim Collins, 2003 Paris. Commonwealth, yeah, yeah. He yeah. did not go sub 10. And won the world championship. Darren Campbell. Yeah. Didn't go sub 10 throughout his whole yeah. career. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. he was a major medalist. Yeah. At, and you I know, think, big championship. But that's what they used to say, isn't it? Like, when I used to come home and watch it on TV and just watch the reruns, they always used to say, Mark Lewis Francis is a championship performer. And they're right. Because I wasn't, I didn't enjoy going to Golden Leagues and Diamond Leagues and just having the one race. I needed to run the rounds, you know, um, I needed to get the feel of the games and all the rest of it. So what will be, will be, <laughs> you know, like I said, like for me, it was never ever about the time because we're the UK. We don't have the weather. We didn't have the facilities and we're not built like the Americans, and it? You know, they can run sub 10 week in, week out. And they got a whole string of, you know, collegiate athletes coming in. You understand like what I'm saying? It's just, it's just like a big chain. We haven't got that over here, so... If you want to talk about headstrong, I think the British athletes are definitely the most headstrong because you'd run against these sub-10 athletes and you'd beat them. Do you think at times, looking back, that the press, the press, the media, when it came to, you know, talking about the British sprinters at the time, because yeah, they, if you guys were all around... Time, this, yeah, they, mm. gave, they did give you guys a hard time because, you know, in the compared to the US, it was always GB versus US all yeah. the time. And you always had... The likes of, let's say, Marie Screen, yeah. um, Drummond, Montgomery, yeah. um, all of those guys who were running, but they were running sub 10. And whereas you guys were running like 10 2, 10 3, winning trials or Not 10 10 0. 2, 10 3, more like 10 1, 10 0. Yeah, give us our Jews, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about trials. Uh, so no, let's say, let's yeah. say our trials, like but, Man- remember Manchester back in the yeah, but Remember that wind on the back straight, on the home the straight? Thing, you have to look at where we're running, you know, like these guys were running their trials in Oregon, on probably one of the fastest tracks in the world. So you got to look at, you know, different factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, when these guys came over here, I remember racing Morris Green in Glasgow and even fast that year, very quick that year. And I remember racing and beating him, thinking, no way. <laughs> if we was given the same opportunity as these guys and training in the climate that these guys were training in, we'd run sub 10, trust me. It's just that, you know, we couldn't train in LA all year round and because we're not from there, we're from here, and it's so... You know, and then the French, they'd come out, you know, you had Ponyon, 
that would run sub 10, you know. But these guys, again, they can go to the South for friends. We can't, you know what I mean? <laughs> we can't even go Devon. All oh, right. So, <laughs> you know, for us, it was, we, we only could run within our means. So for me, this is why I said earlier on, time was never a factor. It was all about performance. And I think when you get strong up on time, you get strong up on not performing because you're always chasing the time. I used to always just let my legs do the running, stand on that start line, be the arrogant sprinter that they said I was, but they got to remember we're going to war, you know, um, and just do the thing on the start line, get out first, pick up your knees, finish strong. That's all that was on my mind. You know, um, if I did glance the clock, it was because I needed qualification time for something. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't really looking for a PB or anything like that. So, yeah. 2010, huge, huge comeback for you. But there was also a lot going on over the next couple of seasons. You know, mm. nascent injuries, um, stuff going on in your personal life. Mm. 2012, I do remember seeing you at the London 2012 Games. <laughs> I remember seeing you in the village, but you weren't, yeah. from my perspective, you weren't yourself. You know, you have to remember this was also... Yeah your second Olympics after, you know, not being at Sydney, going to your first Olympics mm. in Athens, winning Olympic gold, missing 2008 Olympics, making the team for London 2012 Olympics, but not necessarily being mm. there. And you did threaten to quit. So what was going on? Where was your head at over those years? for me, you got to remember there was a new wave of sprinters that came in, you know, you had CJ, you had Adam... Zarnell, these guys are mad talented. When I've seen it in myself, you know, that I'm a realist, isn't it? How likely am I going to go out there and win the Olympic gold medal right now in my life? You know, Dwayne, he was running good. Then you had um, Usain Bolt. <laughs> you know, after watching Usain Bolt come into the sport and running the times that he ran... For me, it was hard to compete with that. So the motivation was naturally gone because you're racing for second. And um, Is that maybe where the switch came? You know, because you're talking, it wasn't necessarily to do with times mm. before, where it is now. Usain's just shifted the whole sport. Not just the men's sprints, but the sport. But, you but know? everything was shifted, you know. Everything, everything became different, even behind the scenes. You know, Golden League went to Diamond League. Prize money wasn't what it used to be. You know, you're sacrificing a lot for very little reward. You know, athletics became a bill, you know, an everyday bill. And because of the business element came into yeah, it, right? It wasn't necessarily about the athletes. It wasn't about the athletes. It became a business. And the enjoyment of it disappeared for me. I didn't love it no more, you know. I'd always loved the sport, but love doing it was a different ball game you know I was making a lot of sacrifices I had young kids you know that I was missing birthdays Christmases whatever because I was committed to my training and I thought enough's enough ain't it you know um, I gotta start being me you know I was living in a place where which wasn't home you know um, and I needed to come back and be around my peoples my family my friends just to get that support and stability so um in 2013, I decided to call it a day and um, walk away from the sport. And Did anyone probably... know about it at the time? Nah, I just left. I just decided not to go training no more and do anything else because I was just heartbroken, you know, with everything that 
I've been through in the sport and where my head was mentally. You know, um, like I said, you know, for me, standing on the start line and feeling that adrenaline run through your body and the nerves of not knowing, you know, what the result's going to be, even though you want it to be a win, you know, um, it all went. And I remember standing on the start line and thinking, I don't want to do this no more. And I walked away. So, yeah. So no one was aware of you quitting track and field at the time? To, this, you... to this very day, I could still compete. <laughs> I'm, I'm not officially retired, you know. Um, but, you know, I didn't really want to make a big scene because I know, you know, um, I didn't achieve what I could have achieved individually. You know, like I said, I had an amazing career. But um, there's so much I could have done more that I didn't do. So I just decided, let me just step away from this. Then I got introduced to Bobsley. Yeah, along with some fellas, GB Sprinters as well, Simeon Williamson, Joel Fearon. Mm-hmm. So where did that switch come from? And did you actually, no, seriously though, Mark, did you enjoy the calls? No. no, no <laughs> you know what it's like doing all those winter training sessions in the UK and now you're purposely making the choice it and was, I'll do bobsleigh. It was for my own mental health more than anything else to disengage from track and field. I joined bobsleigh for an in-between sport and where I'm still training. I'm still staying in shape, but I'm not actually doing track and field. And um, I did my first season and it was it was amazing, you know. Um, but then the politics kicks in and I had enough of that. What were their politics? Anything in particular? Just politics, you know, team selection, you know, same old stuff, you know, favourites within favourites. And, and so you basically had that in track and field mm. and now using bobsleigh as your escapism from track and field. It, Once it was, you were making teams, you were back to where you originally were in, on the political side. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I just said that I can't do this no more. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's cold, it's it's freezing, you know, we we go to nice places, but I'm not really enjoying it. And, you know, I just had my little girl and I thought I ain't doing this again. So I decided to call it a day and um, do something different. Where does happiness lie for Mark Lewis Francis? Because I know you've got different businesses, yeah, you're moving, yeah. it's, it's... living in Wales now. So what is life like for Mark Lewis Francis? One word, self-sufficient. It's all about me now and creating that um, opportunity for myself. You know, like I said, you know, um, I opened up my salon two years ago. You know, properties that I've that I've had and sold. Um, moving to South Wales with my partner, my little girl. You know, um, being able to watch my little girl grow and take her to school. You know, and bits and pieces like that that I necessarily didn't do before. So a value of life is a little bit better. You know, um, I'm in control of my own destiny. You know, I don't have to, you know... Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't have to meet certain demands of contracts or keep certain people happy to keep money in my pocket. It's all about myself doing it, being self-sufficient and making sure that everything I've got going on... My, going on in my life is 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 is, is dealing with itself if that makes any sense mm-hmm. so yeah because you did deal with a lot from such a young age like yeah. pressure upon pressure and 
you know, you didn't, you weren't one of those athletes who was an average junior athlete. You know, we've seen yeah, a lot, yeah, yeah. you know, with the British being a British athlete over the years, there's always that thing about seeing so much potential in a junior athlete, then making that transition to senior level. And you were the child prodigy. You, <laughs> you were, you, you were basically the roadmap, although you did have injuries and, you know, you dealt with personal stuff at the same time. You did achieve a lot. In my junior career, I can't knock it. Everything that I needed to achieve, I achieved in my junior career. Um, in my senior career, it was different because then it became financially rewarding as well. And there were certain demands and contracts and bonuses you had to meet. Which in my junior career, I just ran, you know, and there wasn't that there wasn't that much demand. Do you know what I mean? And you know, when you get older and you've got bills and responsibilities your life changes a little bit, do you know what I mean? Where you got to start focusing on the importance instead of being selfish. Because athletics is a selfish sport. You know, there's no way you can do athletics and have a family and, you know, try and open a business because, as you know, you got to put 100% into it. Or if you don't, you're scrutinised. You know, you stand on the track, you run a one bad race and they'll be on your back about it. So... For me, I couldn't live the way I wanted to live, you know, while doing athletics. So as for happiness now, I get to go on my motorbike, you know, go to France on my bike, enjoy life, go on holidays, you know, enjoy time with my family and just appreciate life for what it really is. And I'll always thank athletics for that because it gave me my foundation. Now I'm just building my house, you know what I mean, (laughs) if that makes any sense. And hopefully putting a roof on and kicking back and relaxing. You know, um, and doing things that I want to do and not doing things that I have to do. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Listening to you talk about that, you definitely sound like you're in a really, really good space. Yeah, of course, of course. It ain't easy. Like, life is not easy, you know, as we know. You know, um, you've just recently retired yourself. and (laughs) You've got to find yourself again and find what makes you tick. And for me, it's helping people like me. You know, with not maybe another opportunity to go out there and go and do a sport that they want to do because financially they can't do it. So by telling my story and what I achieved and how I achieved it inspires a lot of young folks to actually get up and give it a go. And um, I think that's very important. You know, um, I don't think the world's got that many role models as such with an impact in their own area as such. And I think, you know, you start from home and then you spread out. So that's where I'm trying to be right now in my own time in my own space so yeah and what advice would you give to an athlete who may potentially be going through the same thing or similar thing or athletes who are up and coming in the sport because you basically were that athlete who had Mm. that transition from an amazing junior to a senior and although you did have bumps here and there you know, you still had a great career. So would you offer any advice to any young up-and-coming athletes? Yeah, my advice would always be take a step back and have a look in and see where you want to go, not where the people that want you to go. You know what I mean? Because, as you know, your career goes quick. It's Can 100, finish tomorrow. 100 mile an hour, you know. So always take a step back. Do your goal setting. Be realistic. You know, I my goal was to win the Olympic gold medal. It was a dream, do you know what I mean? It was up in the clouds, but, you know, I stayed focused and I made sure I did what I needed to do to to get to that point. So, you know, always follow your dream, do you know what I mean? And try not to live through anybody else. Um, 
uh, enjoy it, man. Because real life is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy it, man. Enjoy your time. In, 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 enjoy the world. Enjoy the people that you meet. You know, um, and go out there and be the best that you can be. So yeah, that's 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 my only advice. So yeah. And do you have any regrets looking back? Zero, zero regrets. Not man. one. Not one regret. Not one. I, I've I've met some amazing people. I'm I'm on my way. I've still got some amazing people in my life today. You know, um, Paysport Management, North Respect, Linford. You know, the Platt family. You know, um, nothing long. You know, um, <laughs> you know these people. When I'm at a track meet, will always take time out and you know come and say hello. Or, you know, what I mean, there's many, many more too that I've probably missed out, but they know who they are anyway. So. You know, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. This has been absolutely incredible. I need you to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, because everything that we've spoken about is not covered. You know, there's a lot of things that you've probably missed out yeah, on, there's, and there's you know, a whole bunch. There's yeah, a whole there's bunch a, there's a lot. That, there are a lot of things. Mm. Um, you've just you've been incredible. You've been accredited to sport, even if at times you didn't received the accolades that you probably should have been given um you inspired me i told you from no, from young even that, when man. i used to compete yeah. against your cousin and um, back in the mcdonald's league yes the good old leagues man <laughs> them, man of the match man of the match <laughs> them free cheeseburgers yes i remember doing all of that and um and then watching that so someone like me was watching you win Olympic gold when I was working part-time in a hotel as a waitress, you know? Mm. And I was like, I want that. These are these guys who I want to aspire to be, you know? And actually, in fact, the very first time I spoke to you was 2002 Commonwealth Trials. 2002. I was, we had, remember we had the Manchester Trials. We had the Trials in Manchester for the Commonwealth Games, right? Yes, we did. So I missed out on the final of the 100 metres. And I remember I was sitting on the bench in the kit, kit room and the men's 100 metres then came through. So all you guys were coming through and I was mm. sat there on the bench crying. And you just came up to me. I didn't know if you'd know me at the time, but you were like, listen, whatever you're going through, it'll be fine. Like, it's okay, it's okay. And I was like, no, I missed out <laughs> on a place in the Commonwealth Games. And I was only like 17 and no, about, about 18, 19 at the time, because it was a home champs, it was yes. a home games, so I wanted yes. to be a part of it. And then you saying those words was just like inspiring, you know, because no one was uh, there mean, at the time. Yeah, that means a lot, man. It's, I appreciate but, that. But you were a peer, you know what mm, I mean? You were mm. you were Mark Lewis Francis, you everyone knew who you were in the sport. You probably had your own stuff going on already. You had your own pressures mm. becoming a poster boy for those particular championships. You and Dwayne going head to head um that particular year, and then you know the next few years after that so you know from a personal standpoint thank you so much no anytime i appreciate that that means a lot for real um 2002 was a, an amazing year you know and like you were saying it was a home championships that was my first ever major home championships and so i've probably seen you and probably knew what you was going through <laughs> because the possibility of me being in your situation was probably very likely you know um so you just go out and you know it's a family athletics yeah. you know what I mean I mean especially sprinting you know yeah. you know um, we all know how much work we put in so little reward at the end it's hundreds thousands of a second you know of qualification and um, yeah for me like I said 2002 that was the start of 
many injuries, many upsets, and me finding out what athletics was really about, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But look what you achieved. I mean, I did all right. You did all more than all right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you did the I two did. and then moved to the four. I salute you. I yeah? salute me too because honestly, <laughs> that lactic. Even when you were talking about those four four hundred sessions that you were doing, yeah, like no. Yeah. I used to just be like, coach, what are you doing? But then it yeah. became, you know, it became my event essentially. So I go to the track now and I look around the track now. I think to myself, how did I used to do those sessions? Exactly the same thought. Mm. But you do it, right? You do But it. you're not thinking about it from a financial aspect. No. Nah. Running always gave us so much joy because mm. you felt free. It was always the freeness of running for me. You know, there was no restrictions, no yeah. matter what I was going through. Remember when you started at such a young age? You felt free, right? Definitely free, definitely free. And um, even when people say to me, how did you compete in a stadium full of people? I didn't realise there were people in there when I was competing. Because like you said, once you hear that gongo, you're free. You know, um, and I was always, I'm a free spirit. You know, so the running, <laughs> I was able to express my inner feelings on the track. You know, that was always me. And people say, Mark, how did you run so quick? I couldn't tell you. One foot in front of the other. And go. And go. And that's all it was, you know. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, athletics has given me so much, man. And just sitting here today, thinking about it, reminiscing. I kind of feel emotional right now, you know what I mean? But um, yeah. This is what happens on Hidden Greatness Podcast, trust me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. So thank you, you know what I mean, for making me a part of your show and, you know, and telling my story. No, thank you. And thank you for being so open and honest and not just sharing your story, but also inspiring the next generation because that's exactly what you want because that's yeah. how you give back, but also that's how you help others. So... Def- yeah, definitely, definitely. To be a part two, man, <laughs> and a book. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ma. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and like. Tell a friend to tell a friend about Hidden Greatness, which is available on all streaming platforms. Catch you on the next episode. Bye.